Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. One of my favorite Bible characters is a woman named Rahab. Because her story is such a profound example of God's grace for sinners like me. Now, some of you might think Rahab is a rather obscure Old Testament character to be a favorite Bible character. Uh, But consider this. Consider that Rahab is recalled in the New Testament, both in the book of Hebrews and in the book of James, where she's identified as a heroine and as an example of great faith. So Rahab may be obscure in the sense that we don't know a great deal about her, but what we do know about her is a most striking lesson for us on how God rewards our faith in him. Now the larger context for the story of Rahab is the battle of Jericho which is one of the more controversial portions in the Bible. The scene is set roughly around 1400 BC as Israel is uh, coming to the end of their 40 years in the wilderness. Moses has gone to meet his maker and Joshua is instructed by God to prepare the people at long last to enter the promised land, the land of Canaan. Jericho is considered to have been the most important Canaanite fortress city in the Jordan Valley. It was the tip of the Canaanite spear. Biblearchaeology.org states the site is strategically located From Jericho, one has access to the heartland of Canaan. Any military force attempting to penetrate the hill country from the east would, by necessity, first have to capture Jericho. Joshua chapter 2 is where we jump in today, and I invite you to turn there and to... Pray with me. Lord, please bless your word to our hearts today. Please, uh, Lord, that your spirit might be our teacher and that we would have ears to hear and hearts to learn what you want to say to us today through your word. And we pray, Lord, that we might uh, gain a more of a, an, an understanding and appreciation for what, for what it means to have faith in you and what your grace means uh, to us and all that it means to us. We pray that you would be pleased to do these things for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Joshua chapter two, the first seven verses. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. 
And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not... Uh, know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now it might seem a little dubious to us, that these Jewish agents would choose a brothel as a place to go spy out the land. But uh, consider a very practical question, and that is where in the city might strange men come and go without being detected or without arousing suspicion? So that might be uh, our answer to the question. Nonetheless, uh, word got out, and the authorities showed up, And what did Rahab do? She hid the men. And in so doing, she shows where her loyalties lie. And as the story unfolds, we find that God was very much at work in the heart of this young woman. Verse 8 and 9 says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now, that's quite a statement of faith coming from a Canaanite woman. She even used uh, the name and refers to God by the name that he revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to Moses. And uh, then in verses uh, 9 and 10 and 11, it says, And all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Again, a a, a very significant statement of faith uh, by this young woman. Now, the walls of Jericho had no doubt been a sense of great security over the years for these people. And uh, there is some significant symbolism here, I believe, in, in these walls of Jericho. The world atlas refers to ancient Jericho as the first walled community. Uh, in this sense, it, it, it represents something. Uh, the UNESCO World Heritage website says that Jericho is the earliest fortified agricultural settlement built in human history. And the site goes on to say that it became one of the strongest fortified and most glorious Canaanite city-states with a developed urban center, streets flanked by residential houses, and rich domestic furniture found inside excavated residential houses and tombs. 
That same article goes on to state that Jericho has functioned as a cross point for ancient roads, networks running north, south, and east-west, serving as an intermediate place for culture and trade. And that is a significant factor because the culture of Jericho and of Canaan is something that we need to be thinking about today. Rahab knew those walls intimately. She lived in them. But as insular as that might sound, news travels even through big stone walls. Uh, They had heard about what went down in Egypt 40 years ago. The citizens of Canaan had no doubt grown up on those, some of those stories. And then in recent days, they had heard about the, enemy, the armies of Sion and Og that Israel devoted to destruction. But not only had they heard these things, they also had visuals as well. Uh, there were no walls to hide Israel or to, for Israel to hide behind. Some of you may recall the story of Balaam. And um, I know we're talking about Jericho and, uh, and about Rahab today, but uh, some of you will recall the story of Balaam, which is recorded in the book of Numbers. If you read through the, uh, the, the, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And so the uh, book of Numbers uh, recounts... Uh, different events taking place when Israel spent that 40-year period in the, in the wilderness. And the book of Numbers records some events that happened just before the uh, scripture passages that we're reading here today, just as Israel was poised to enter the land. And there was this king of Moab, his name was Balak. And uh, he was feeling very threatened by the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, and for good reason. And so he tries to hire this rogue prophet named Balaam uh, to pronounce a curse on Israel. Now, I don't know if that's sounding for familiar to you yet, but the story takes several chapters to tell. And the most well-known part is where Balaam's donkey speaks to him and saves his life. You may have heard that story if you haven't read through even the book of Numbers. But yeah, and uh, the part of the story that I want you to think about today though is how Balak, the king of of Moab, uh, keeps taking Balaam up to the high places in Canaan land uh, in an attempt to get him to pronounce a curse on Israel. So for example, in Numbers 22, verse 41, it says, In the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal. And from there, he saw a fraction of the people. That's the people of Israel encamped in the wilderness on the edge of the Jordan uh, Valley. Um, So the residents of Canaan could ascend to the high places, which they often did because those were places of pagan worship, and they could get a visual 
of this vast encampment on the edge of the desert. Now, Joshua chapter 4, verse 13 says that 40,000 soldiers, soldiers of Israel passed over the Jordan to besiege the city of Jericho. So what might that massive encampment arranged by God, sprawled out in the desert, look like from the hills of Canaan? Well, we can tell from even the passage we read that it was an ominous sight. Instead of cursing the people, Balaam blesses the people because he says to Balak, you can't curse what God has blessed. Even though he was a rogue prophet, he, he knew some things and he knew that. But uh, Balak is insistent, so he, after uh, he taking them up to, him up to Bamoth Baal, he takes them to, the, takes them to uh, the Mount Pisgah, Numbers 23, verse 14. And that didn't work either. So then he tries one more time. Balak takes uh, Balaam up to Mount, the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. It says in uh, Numbers 23, verse 28, so Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. And then in Numbers 24, verses 1 through 3, in verse 5, it says this, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to look for omens, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the spirit of God came upon him and he took up this discourse and he said, and then in verse five, it says, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your, your encampments, O Israel. So the simple point that I'm trying to make here is that this massive encampment of Israel was visible to the Canaanites. And their vast numbers were part of the, of the blessing that God made to Abraham. You may recall where in Genesis it says that, it records God's words to Abraham, these words, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sands that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. So here you have this, this massive encampment. It's hard to, for us to even imagine what that would have looked like. Sprawled out there in the desert, all ordered by God and arranged by God according to tribe, uh, all uh, ready uh, and prepared as, a military, as military units to take the, the, the promised land. And there's more to Balaam's story. Uh, Numbers 22 through 25 Uh, There's also reference to Balaam's um, unfortunate demise in Numbers chapter 31, verse 8. There are numerous mentions of Balaam in the New Testament. uh, But the point here, as I say, is that the people of the land were readily aware of the impending judgment coming. They could see it coming. And God gave Rahab eyes of faith not only to see the judgment coming, but more importantly, God gave Rahab eyes of faith to see him. Verse 11, her words are, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's the content of her faith and she acted accordingly. And by her acts of faith, 
she saved not only herself, but her entire family, as we see, as we read through more of Joshua chapter 2. Verses 12 through 14, Joshua 2. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours. These are the spies, right, that she's talking to here. And they said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And then in verse 15, it says, she let them down by a rope through the window. This is Joshua chapter 2, verse 15. She let them down through... um, by a rope through the window, for her her house was built into the city wall. As they're leaving, the spies made it clear to Rahab that in order for her to keep their word, that she would be spared along with her family, that she would have to ensure two things happened. One, that all of her family remained inside the house when the battle took place, and secondly, that she distinguished her house by hanging a scarlet rope out of the window to indicate which household was to be spared. And they said, if you do not do this, then, verse 19, their blood will be upon their own head. Now, this mention of the scarlet rope in conjunction with the blood is very significant. And these details are reminiscent of Israel's escape from Egypt. Think back to the Passover, where the Israelites were instructed to put the sign of the blood on the door frames of their houses so that the death angel would... Uh, discern which houses were covered by the blood or protected by the blood. And they were told that if they did that, then the death angel would spare them, spare that house. So this scene in the book of Joshua is reminiscent of that. Uh, And it says in Joshua chapter 2, verse 21, she said... According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied a scarlet cord in the window. Joshua chapter 3, Israel crosses the Jordan. Joshua chapter 4, they set up memorial stones from the river for a permanent remembrance. Joshua chapter five, the people rededicate themselves in obedience to the Lord as a nation. And Joshua chapter six, we have the battle of Jericho. It's one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. You probably are familiar with it. God instructs Joshua on how it's all going to go down. 
He is to march his armies with the priests and with the Ark of the Covenant around the city walls once a day for seven days. Then on the seventh day, um, they are to encircle the walls seven times. And then on the seventh time around, the people are commanded, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And they did. And on the seventh day, they gave a great battle cry. And it says there in verse 20, the wall fell down flat. This is chapter six, verse 20. The wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And then in verse 21, it says, and they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. As I mentioned off the top, the context for the story of Rahab is one of the more controversial portions in the Bible. But the context is very important. So I want to just pull back a little bit for a moment and think uh, a little bit about the bigger picture here. You may be familiar with the biblical record of how God promised Abraham the land of Canaan to him and his descendants. It was part of what we call the Abrahamic covenant. It wasn't the center. The land wasn't the center of the covenant, uh, but it was part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. The center of the Abrahamic covenant, uh, important, Genesis chapter 12 Bear with me here, but the context is important. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country. This is the call of Abram, whose name would would become Abraham. This is his first appearance in Scripture, Genesis chapter 12. This is where God calls him from the land of the Chaldees, the land we refer to in history as Mesopotamia. And he called him to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who honors you, I will, dishonors you, I will curse. Makes me think of Balaam, right? And in you, and this this is the, the real heart and center of the covenant, and in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. That last statement, I believe, is the very center of the covenant, and it's, it's really a, a prophetic uh, reference to the coming of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, who, of course, was born as a descendant of uh, Abraham. Um, so that's Genesis 12, 1 to 3, where God calls Abram. But look at Genesis chapter 15 with me. Genesis 15, verses 18 to 21. It says, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Uh, If you're counting, that's 10 
ethnic groups or nations or whatever. Sometimes the word Canaanite, rather, though, is used as an umbrella term to refer to all of those nations because those are the nations that inhabited what became known as the land of Canaan. So God promised Abraham and his descendants the land. Now look uh, at, uh, it's just a back up, a couple of verses before that in Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God said this to Abram while he's in the promised land. He's talking about Egypt. Remember the story of Joseph and, how, and Jacob and all the sons, and they had to move to Egypt, and they spent roughly 400 years in Egypt. That's what God's talking about here. But I will bring judgment, verse 14, Genesis chapter 15, verse 14, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, that's the Egyptians, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, as for you, Abraham, or Abram, you shall go to your father's in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they, your descendants, will come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's a very important statement, isn't it? The biblical story of salvation is also a story of judgment. We cannot understand or appreciate what it means to be saved, something we talk a great deal about, without understanding and appreciating God's judgment of sin. And it's not about things like ethnicity. Take a look at this quick statement, Deuteronomy 9 verse 5. They're getting ready to enter the land and, and uh, Moses, God through Moses says this to the Israelites, Deuteronomy 9, chapter 9, verse 5, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to, to possess their land, but because, what? Of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That this is an issue of morality, not ethnicity, is further confirmed by this fact that God will later use the nations in a similar manner to judge Israel when they corrupt themselves by adopting some of the same idolatry and practices of the pagan nations around them. What's it say in the book of James? God is no respecter of persons. I think Romans chapter 3 verse 19 says the law is given that all the world may stand guilty before God. Judgment and salvation are twin themes in the Bible and the overall theology of the Bible. 
it's important for us to understand these things. The Lord doesn't just save us from judgment. He saves us by and through judgment. Speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus for our salvation, Paul says in Romans 3 that the blood of Jesus was shed so that God might be just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus. Or to put it in other words, that God might be just and yet save us and forgive us from our sins through the crucifixion and the shedding of the blood of Jesus on our behalf. God judges sin and accomplishes salvation. Christ took the punishment for our sin upon himself. And the cross of Jesus in this way is the ultimate occurrence of both judgment and salvation being fulfilled at the same time in the same event. And when we look at the cross of Jesus, we see both. We don't just see the grace and forgiveness of God through the sacrifice of his son. We also see the judgment of sin. And if you do not see the judgment of sin on the cross, then you can't see the grace and mercy of Jesus. So to understand this controversial portions in scripture, like the one we're in today, we need to understand this. God doesn't just say, I know you're a guilty sinner, but that's okay. I'm gonna give you a pass. God never says that, ever. If God did say that, and we might say, well, too bad, eh? Wouldn't it be great if God could just give us a pass? The problem with that theology is that God would not be just. And there would be no justice extracted. The gospel message is that God, the Father, extracted his divine justice uh, by judging his own son. Sin and judgment are the backstory of salvation. Think back to the book of Exodus. I mentioned the Passover earlier. Uh, but God used the judgments against Egypt to save or rescue Israel. Uh, and look at this, this statement. This is from Asaph, uh, one of the psalmists. He says in Psalm 76, verse 8 and 9, just look at this, this carefully here. From the heavens you uttered judgment, speaking, of course, of, of Almighty God. From the heavens you uttered judgment, the earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. God doesn't just save us from judgment. God uses his justice and his judgment to save us. Think about how you would feel if you walked out that door today and somebody grabbed you and started to choke you and wail on you and kick you and put you throwing you on the ground and kick the daylights out of you and beat you half to death. 
Where's the justice? Where's the justice for an act like that? Does God just overlook what that person did to you? It always feels different when you're on the other side of it, doesn't it? God is never on the other side of it. He's always just, but always merciful. And in our minds, that's a paradox we can't resolve. But God resolved it by sending his own son to die for us. And the scarlet cord that this woman hung in her window is a symbol of the precious blood of Jesus that runs throughout the entire Bible for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, as we consider these things, and I I need to speed the train up, but what does history tell us about the Canaanites? Well, we don't have enough time to go into all of this in any kind of comprehensive way this morning, uh, and that's probably a good thing because it's not very pleasant stuff. Their story includes not only uh, things like prostitution, but adultery, incest, rape, homosexual acts, pedophilia, bestiality, even child sacrifice. So what does God do about things like that? Give them a pass? Several hundred years have passed. Roughly 400 years have passed since Abraham. God told Abraham the problem. And it's important for us to understand too that their, their immorality was part of their worship. Because the gods they conceived of behaved in the same manner and their service of their false gods included their immoral actions. So here's a little bit more backstory. When Balaam realized that he wasn't going to get paid and wasn't going to be able to collect his reward for cursing Israel, he came up with another plan. He decided to give Balak some advice. And Balak took his advice. And his advice was to send Moabite women into the camp of Israel to seduce the men, which included both sexual seduction and idolatry because the two are integral here in these passages. Um, Jesus also refers to this, by the way, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, if you want to check that out. Uh, It became known as the Baal of Peor incident. And just to let you know, uh, you know, Um, that 24,000 Israelites died as a result. God judged them for their sin. So, again, we need to understand that this whole narrative, while being about God saving his people, uh, is also about God judging sin. 
we, we don't know the circumstances around Rahab's life of prostitution, but we do know that sexual sin was deeply embedded in the Canaanite culture. I would suggest to you today, sexual sin is deeply embedded in our culture. The sexual exploitation of children is a global crisis. And it wouldn't even exist if there was no market for it. These are big topics and and the unbelieving world subscribes to their own narrative to explain these realities. But ask yourself the question, what best explains the world we find ourselves in? What best explains the world we find ourselves in? Or what even best explains our own hearts when we think about the guilt and the shame that all of us bear because of our sin? God's word explains it. So Rahab, in faith, hangs that scarlet cord from her window And Israel took the city just as she had foreseen that it would. And the text says they then devoted all the city to destruction. And then in Joshua chapter 6, verses 22 through 25, it says, But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had spies went in, who who, uh, had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And then verse 25 of Joshua chapter 6, it says, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, here's an interesting fact. In 1907, a German excavation team doing an archaeological dig at the site of the former Jericho location found a short stretch of the lower wall on the north side that did not fall as it had everywhere else. A portion of that mud brick wall was still standing in 1907. And there were houses built against that wall. So that's the end of Rahab's story. Or is it? Some of you know it's not. There's no mention again of Rahab in the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament narrative, you never hear another thing about this young woman. 
But take a look with me at the first few verses of the New Testament. And we'll finish, we'll finish with this, Matthew chapter one. Verse one says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse two says, Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. It's a genealogy. It's a genealogy of Jesus. It's the bloodline of the Messiah. Now take a look at verse five. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. You may or may not be familiar with the story of Ruth said in the time of the Old Testament book of Judges. But if you are, you will know about Boaz and how he married Ruth, the Moabitess. It's an incredible story of grace. And now here we are in the New Testament and we're reading the first few verses of the New Testament and we find out that Boaz's mom was none other than Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute who was saved by faith and got a whole new life as part of the people of God. She even became part of the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. Sin is a serious reality and sexual sin is a serious reality and there's an integral relationship between sexual sin and idolatry. And God is obligated by his own righteousness to judge sin. These are realities. But then there is the reality of the scarlet cord of grace. Do you know Jesus spent time with prostitutes? He got in trouble for it. It wasn't as sexual as some suggest, but he does appear to have had a soft spot for them. He loved them just like he loves you and me. Why is Rahab one of my favorite Bible characters? We are supposed to identify with the characters in scripture. And in Rahab, I see myself because I too had sold myself for sin. But Jesus extended to me that crimson cord of grace by his shed blood. The story of Rahab is part of a larger story of a scarlet thread that runs through the entire Bible, representing the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. So she is known as Rahab the harlot, but she's known for her faith. She is most definitely a woman with a past, but your past does not have to define your future. The world does not get this because the world does not understand 
either sin and judgment or forgiveness because you can't really understand either without understanding both. I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning as we close. And, um, someone asked me a while back if we were going to do questions for, we've been doing questions for groups, uh, and they asked, are you still going to do questions even though some of our groups aren't, aren't um, are taking a break, a bit of a, a summer break or whatever? Uh, I, couldn't, I can't speak for all those who are going to be speaking this summer, but I did uh, put together some uh, life application type uh, things that uh, we're going to put on the website. So they're not right there right now, but they will be on the website. Uh, Brittany said she'd have them up for us uh, before uh, sometime this afternoon, later, later this afternoon when she gets home and has a chance to do that. Heavy? Heavy duty? Yeah. It's heavy stuff. Big stuff. Probably... I don't know, Is there, are there any subjects bigger than, than, than this one? I don't think so. I don't think so. I want to close with just a question for each of you. It's very simple. Have you personally put your trust in the shed blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Will you pray with me? If you're here today and you can answer that in affirmative, then would you maybe take this opportunity? If God would grant you the faith and the eyes to see not only the impending judgment of sin that lay ahead, but also eyes to see Jesus by faith and see God for who he is, the Holy One, Holy God Almighty, Lord of heaven and earth, judge of all the earth, Abraham calls him. May God give you eyes today to see that. May God give all of us eyes today to see not only our sin for what it is, but to see you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and what you've done. The fact that your death means so much is because our situation is so desperate. God, may we see that. And may we rejoice in the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. If you're here today and you could just cry out in your heart and say, Lord, please forgive me. I believe that you died for me. I ask you to save me. you can have a whole new life for all eternity. Forgiven, blessed beyond measure. Lord God, I pray that you would accomplish these things in people's hearts today. Use your word, Lord. Use the message of your word by your spirit. And I thank you for all that you are doing in these days. Help us, Lord, we are in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our, in our land. Please be working, revealing this to people in these days, we pray. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.